Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're back in 1 Corinthians this week. We're looking at verses 12 to 31. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning, several months ago. Several months ago, we took our men in the Iron Man Bible study through the nuts and bolts of teaching and preaching a Bible lesson or sermon. We kind of walked them through all of that. And among other things, we talked about the science and the art of crafting a lesson or a sermon um, to distill down. You know, we taught them things like how to distill down a main thesis, how to create an outline, uh, how to put all that together in a complete package with an introduction, conclusion. And uh, we reiterated in that time that the framework that nearly every homiletics textbook gives the, uh, the aspiring preacher or teacher, um, which is the, you know, the, the framework that they give is that every main point in your outline should have three things. It should have explanation, it should have illustration, and it should have application. Um, explanation makes the meaning of the text clear. Illustration takes the scripture's meaning and relates it to something else, something hopefully that we have more familiarity with or maybe other portions of scripture for clarity and memory's sake. And then application takes the text's meaning, which is hopefully a little more clear after the explanation and the illustration, and then brings that to bear on the hearts and lives of the audience, those who are listening, those who are hearing. And when new preachers and teachers are starting out, we are we're strongly encouraged to follow that framework, explanation, illustration, application, and to stick with that framework until we became more skillful and more experienced, at which point we might you know, vary things up a little bit for interest's sake and creativity. Every teacher and preacher has their own style. Every teacher and preacher of God's word hones and develops that over time, just like a professional athlete or a musician or a writer does, but there are some foundational communication skills that have to be mastered before you can strike out and put your own unique sort of uh, sp- you know spin on things. Just like a basketball player, they have to learn how to dribble and shoot and pass with good form before you know that player can add his own kind of flair to the game. A musician has to learn how to read music and follow a time signature, the rhythm of a time signature, and, and hold their instrument or address their instrument properly before they can adapt to their own style. A writer has to master spelling and parts of speech and, and uh, proper grammar before they can rearrange those words into some kind of artful essay or a novel of some kind. And it's the same with the teacher and preacher of God's word. And I bring all that up by way of introduction because in our text this morning, in verses 12 to 31, Paul employs this foundational explanation, illustration, application framework to um, the purpose of teaching us how to think about spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul aims to teach in these verses and exhort the Corinthian church to become a mature, spirit-filled people. That's his, that's his desire. And he wants them to be those who glorify God in all that they do. And, to, and the communication strategy he puts to work, the, the thing that he puts to work here is the same communication strategy that almost all teachers and preachers of the Word of God have utilized through the ages. You explain the truth, you illustrate the truth, you then apply the truth. There was no small amount of debate and dysfunction in their midst about 
this whole manner of spiritual gifts. And we said last time and even the week before that the, the specific issue was their abuse and misuse of the gift of languages, the gift of tongues. God wants us when we come together to come together for the good of the body, for the building up of the body, and all things are to be done decently and in order. And sadly, that wasn't happening in Corinth. And so Paul writes, really, all the way, if you include chapter 11, I think you can include chapter 11, down through chapter 14, he's writing them to set things back on the right track. They're off. They've written him with these questions. They don't understand what they're supposed to be doing. He's telling them and showing them where where they need to get back on the right track. And you, and his understanding, his point is, you can't expect God's people to rightly understand the proper use of one gift, like tongues, which is kind of the thing they were fixated on. You can't understand um, how to you know, relate rightly on one gift if you don't understand the overall nature and purpose of spiritual gifts. So it's kind of like the difference between you know, teaching a man to fish versus giving him a fish. And what Paul's doing in chapter 12 is teaching us how to fish. Um, he does that by diving into, uh, excuse me, he's giving us a general word, I should say, in verses in chapter 12 on spiritual gifts. And he's pairing that seamlessly with the necessity and preeminence of love in chapter 13. And then only after he has gone through all of that, does he then make the application to them in chapter 14 and address the issue of tongues, urging them to, to back off of this um, kind of uh, un, very unhelpful fixation and exaltation of this one gift that was dividing the church and standing in the way of their witness, their gospel witness. So it was a problem. Now, last Sunday, we looked at verses 4 to 11, and Paul, we said, gave us a primer on spiritual giftedness, a simple text that serves as an introduction to this topic of spiritual gifts. We said in verses 4 to 11 are foundational. They're foundational to an overview on this topic. It is not, we said, exhaustive. What he says in these verses is not exhaustive, so that we would, he wants us to properly understand where they come from, he wants the gifts to come from, what their purpose is, how they might look in the life of the church, and who ultimately decides to whom what gift will be given or gifts will be given. Uh, so it's just big picture in a, in, a, in a summary form. From 4 to the end of the chapter, then, Paul is explaining and emphasizing the need for a diversity of giftings in the unity of the one spirit. And we broke the text down into four parts. In verses 4 to 6, God taught us, uh, Paul taught us that God is the author of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were latching on to gifts and exalting the gift of tongues as a particular gift as a matter of pride, and they were pitting each other against others in the church, which was um, obviously tearing the church apart. So it became another way that they were driving division in their midst. But Paul explains simply but profoundly that that is contrary to God himself. And uh, we noted the Trinitarian parallelism in 4, 5, and 6. He says there are varieties of gifts, but the same God, excuse me, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God. So 
We made the point that experientially, outside of himself, for you and for me, the persons of the Trinity are inseparable, even if in various texts highlight individual things that one or uh, particular uh, one or more of the persons is doing. So it's very important for us to understand that God works as one. And we said this is an important but poorly understood doctrine called inseparable operations. God the Father isn't over here doing one thing, and God the Son isn't over here doing something else, and the Spirit's not over here doing a third thing. Uh, Whatever the Father is doing, the Son is doing, and the Spirit is doing, he doesn't fight against himself. The end of verse 6, God who works all things in all persons. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God is doing that. So Paul ties all that together as a strong argument that there's no basis whatsoever in the church for the church to be uh, divided or dissenting amongst each other, especially over something like spiritual gifts, because it's one and the same God who provides the gifts in all of their variety. God doesn't fight against himself, so that clearly is not of God. The triune God, who is himself the great three-in-one, works all things in all, is the same God responsible for the diversity of giftings in the one body, which is his church. And we learn that the aim of spiritual gifts, then, is the building up of the body for the common good. Spiritual gifts are something that others in the church, besides you, experience and are advantaged by. That's what the word common good means, that term. Their aim or purpose is the benefit of others. God doesn't give us gifts to boost our self-esteem. He doesn't give us certain gifts to um, fulfill our lives or to, um, as a vehicle to uh, you know, raise our standing in the church. The gifts are distributed to each one for the building up of others. And then he gave a list of spiritual gifts in verses 8 to 10. He talked about the assortment of gifts. And we pointed out that this, this list is um, unique to the Corinthian church, and it included some sign gifts like prophecy, gifts of healing, um, miracles, and the gift of tongues, which have, those gifts have ceased now that we have the entirety of God's word written down for us. So it's representative of the church. Uh, this, the list here in verses 8 to 10, just like the list at the end of 12, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, as well as in Romans chapter 12, those lists, each one of those lists, they're in and of themselves is not comprehensive or exhaustive, but they are representative of the ways that the triune God gifts individuals for the building up of his body. And then we ended looking at the allocation of the gifts in verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. God's gifts, therefore, aren't set over and against one another. All who have them And every believer has them. There's emphasis there on each one, to each one. They cooperate in working out the singular purpose of God in building up his church. That's how it works. The emphasis lies on how the Spirit, in perfect concord with the Son and the Father, has absolute sovereignty to distribute his gifts, however he chooses. So from the beginning to the end of these verses last Sunday, the accent on the, on, uh, in this paragraph is on the diversity of gifts, the diversity of gifts that the one God distributes through his spirit for the sake of the church. But Paul is not content to just 
move on. He's not going to jump off of this topic just yet. And uh, like all good preachers, he loves to linger on those things that he thinks about the most, the things that occupy his mind and heart most deeply. And clearly, as we read the verses that we're going to teach through this morning, Paul has been thinking about these issues, and he feels passionately about that which pertains to the Spirit in their midst. And so, starting in verse 12, all the way down to verse 31, Paul more or less gives us a a mini-sermon on to reinforce our understanding and appreciation for the diversity of giftings God gives to his one body, the church. That is how I would encourage you to think about this text. From 12 to 31 is is like a little sermon. In verses 12 to 14, he explains the principle. In verses 15 to 26, he illustrates the principle. And then in verses 27 to 31, he applies the principle to their individual context. And that's, that's our outline for this morning. So beginning in verses 12 to 14, Paul explains this principle, which is the same principle he has been explaining since he began this chapter, namely that God gives a diversity, a, ver- a variety of giftings to his one body, the church. Look at verse 12. He says, for even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If you look at verse 12, you'll see, most likely in your translation, it says, begins with the word for. That for there is Therefore, a reason, and that is to help us understand that what he is saying in verses 12 and following is meant to shed more light on what he said in the previous section. And he does that by picking up this imagery of the church as a physical body. It's a metaphor he uses a lot. It's one that we're somewhat familiar with. You know, he's already mentioned it back in chapter 10 in verse 17. He he talks about how uh, he... Um, He explains how we are one body because we partake of the one bread at the Lord's table. So he's already kind of made that analogy um, back in chapter 10. But he repeats the same metaphor here in verse 12. But this time he's not making a case for the unity of the church, but from the unity of the church. And the distinction is important. In other words, Paul is not standing on the platform of diversity and aiming at a target, which is unity with his words. He is standing, rather, on a platform of, of uh, unity and shooting and aiming his, wor- his words at the platform of, at the target, excuse me, of diversity. So he, you notice in verse 12, he says, even as the body is one, yet it has many members. And this little comparative phrase at the end, so also is Christ, takes that word picture of a body, a physical body, with a diversity of parts, and applies it to the church. He applies it to the church. You say, but he says Christ there. What do you mean, the church? Well, because this is really a shorthand for the body of Christ. Right? It's a, he's using what's a, it's a figure of speech called metonymy. We use this all the time. We say, the White House put out a statement today. 
Right? You've probably heard that a, a million times on the news or read it in an article. Well, they don't mean the physical building released a statement, right? The White House is a, a part that represents the whole administration. And what they're saying is the administration that occupies the White House put out a statement today. And that's the same thing here. He says, so also is Christ. Just as the physical body is one, yet has many members, so also is the body of Christ in the same way. He says there's a, there's a, there's a parallel there. And how do we become part of that one body? Well, verse 13 answers that question with another four. He's kind of drilling down. He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, Slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. What makes us one body is that you and I have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, whom we receive at the moment of our faith in Christ. He is not talking about water baptism here. And, and we know that because when he does that, or when other writers do that, they usually speak of baptism in an absolute sense. There's no qualifiers on what baptism they're speaking of. But here, he has these important qualifiers in verse 13. He says, in one spirit, in the one spirit, or by the one spirit, and that qualifier clarifies in whom we were immersed, or, or by whom we were immersed, namely, God the Holy Spirit. So, his point is, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've heard the message of the gospel, and you've believed the, the good news that God sent his one and only son into the world to save sinners, sinners like you and like me, then the moment that you looked away from yourself and you threw yourself on the mercy of Christ and his pardoning grace, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into his spiritual body, which is the church. And from that moment onward, in the Spirit, through the grace of, the, of Christ, on account of the love of the Father, you are made a partaker of eternal life. This is what he's referring to here in these verses. You now have peace with God, and you have been united to his body, the church. Now, some of you probably didn't realize all that happened when you got saved, but it did. It did, and he's explaining to us and, and pulling back the curtain so that we understand spiritually what is gone on at the moment of conversion. Therefore, water baptism, when we take somebody and we physically immerse them in the water and bring them back up in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that act only has significance because it, it testifies to the spiritual reality that has already taken place at the moment of that person's faith in Christ. That one is being joined to the many in the physical body of the church, but that is reflective of what spiritually has already taken place and that they have been brought into, baptized into the one body of Christ. So what are we supposed to make then of this little phrase at the end? He says, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Is Paul talking about some kind of second experience of the Holy Spirit here? Is this, um, is this a second blessing beyond the initial work of conversion? Uh, as some people have, have um, taught and, and, and affirmed, and I would say that is not what he's talking about here. It is not a second blessing or a second kind of experience of the Spirit this is a parallelism. It, the, 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 the clauses are parallel. 
Just as we were baptized into one body, in another way of saying that, we were all made to drink of one. We were all drink, made to drink of one spirit. The spirit has entered our heart of hearts at the moment of conversion. We are baptized in him. The, the, the phrasing of this, the grammar of it, all of it speaks decisively and holistically of a once, you know, kind of singular moment. And the verb is used to describe that of watering a field. The idea is there is abundant supplying of the spirit. You and I were made to drink of this one spirit. As one commentator said, we have all been saturated with one spirit brought into the one body. So whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, those kind of being the main kind of people groups of that era, it doesn't matter what ethnic background you come from or what social stratum you, will, you occupy. We all, Paul says, and he includes himself. I think that's intentional. We all, he says, have the same lavish experience of the Holy Spirit and become one body. That is the picture here, this baptism of the Spirit. But just as quickly as Paul speaks of diversity, uh, the diversity of members being baptized by the Spirit into one body, he reiterates the other equally important truth that we, though are not, that we are not just one part, but many. So he keeps coming back to that. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. Diversity and unity, unity and diversity, Back to diversity and unity again in verse 14. So yes, the church is one. There is a spiritual unity that exists because of our being in Christ, but that does not necessitate uniformity. And the difference is very important. Unity doesn't necessitate uniformity, which the Corinthians thought it did. They thought uniformity was uppermost, that uniformity represented the Spirit's work in their midst, that they would all speak in tongues, or that they would all do miracles, or that they would all prophesy. And Paul says, wait a second. He says that there can't be true unity without diversity. There can't be, uh, he says, just as a physical body being one has many members, so also the body of Christ being one has many members, and each member has its own function and role and part. So that is the explanation. He's just laying that out there again. He's summarizing what he said and putting it out there. Now, in good homiletical style, having explained the principle of diversity and unity in verses 12 to 14, he now illustrates it in verses 15 to 26, and he does that using personification. We love figures of speech. Those of us who preach and teach, we, we should want to use figures of speech all the time. It makes it more interesting and rich, and that's what he does here. In verses 15 to 19, he illustrates the need for diversity. In verses 20 to 26, he illustrates the need or the, the importance of unity. Both are important. Both are connected to our understanding of spiritual gifts. Look at uh, verses 15 to 19 in the illustration. He says, um, If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? 
If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, Paul says, where would the body be? The Corinthian was, church was so fixated on tongues. Those in the midst who didn't, in their midst who didn't you know, speak in tongues and didn't have that gift or some other spectacular kind of public gift like prophecy or affecting of miracles or gifts of healing, they would be tempted to question, what role do I have in this church? What responsibility and blessing can I be in a church like that? And Paul gives a wonderful, wonderful encouragement here to those who may be tempted to think wrongly that everyone in the church should be gifted in the same ways because they, they must not be. Look at verses 15 to 17. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, and again, he's personifying the ear as if it's a person, because I am not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? I mean, this is an illustration that doesn't even need to be explained. No member of the body can perform the function of another. We understand that. Your foot can't do what your hand can do, most of us. Right? You, you can't, your ear can't see like your eye does. But at the same time, your eye can't hear like your ear does. All the diverse members carrying out their unique tasks are necessary for a normal whole, healthy body. And this is God's intentional work. That's the point of verse um, 18. It's God's intentional work in our physical bodies, and it's God's intentional work in his spiritual body, in the church. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, Paul says, where would, where would the body be? And I think this is a great thing to just let us wash over our minds and hearts. No matter how important one person or one gift might be in the local church, we need to understand there can be no whole and healthy body without every member. It cannot be constituted from that one gift alone. The church body cannot be constituted from that one gift alone. As Leon Morris says in his commentary, that would be a monster, not a body. That would be a monster. It makes no sense to fixate on one or two spiritual gifts and expect the whole body to have that gifting or that, you know, one or two of those giftings. We are all gifted differently, and the church needs every single person every single person exercising their gifts in the way God has uniquely blessed them to be a whole and healthy church. So diversity is illustrated here and reinforced. He then flips the coin now in verses 20 to 26 to illustrate that while there is a, a need for diversity and that's important, that diversity doesn't undermine our essential unity. Both are true. Look at verses 20 and 21. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Again, this is personification. He's using the individual parts of our physical body like they're people making these comments. 
But uh, Paul is che- he's putting this forward as a check on those in the church who might be tempted to look down their noses at certain other people in the church. And, to, uh, and those who have a less, um, sp- they manifest less spectacular gifts or they have less uh, public-facing ministry or less prominent giftings. He says, if anyone is tempted to think, oh, we don't really need that person or those people to do X or Y, we will manage just fine without them. Paul shows us how utterly wrong that such a thought would be. It's just not true. The eye cannot do without the hand, nor the head without the feet. One member of the body might be very skilled at doing what it does, It might function exceptionally well in its own right, but that does not mean that it can be discarded, right? Just because your eye works really well doesn't mean you don't need hands and feet, right? Every member has its own function, and each member cannot perform the different function of the other members. Those things work together. We cannot accomplish that on our own, and that is his point which is almost painfully obvious. And I love verse 22. He says, on the contrary, he says, if you were tempted to think this, it is much truer. That's a strong statement there. That the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. This is a wonderful truth. Not only can no member make do without the other member, but he says, even the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That's what that term means. Indispensable. Even if certain members seem on the surface unimportant to us from our human point of view, Paul says that is not true. They are absolutely necessary. Notice Paul in verse 22 here, he doesn't say that they're a benefit or even a welcome benefit. He says what? They're indispensable. They're indispensable. And so I would just say, if you have ever served in this church or any other church and thought the task you're doing was meaningless, or you thought that no one cared and that you had nothing to contribute to the health and vitality of the body, you need to let Paul's words correct that thinking. It's not true. You may feel like what you're doing is pointless or the ways that God's gifted you to serve don't add up to anything, but know this, you are absolutely indispensable to the local church. You are absolutely necessary. Whatever God has given you, it is necessary for the church. He goes on in verse 23 and 24, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Paul, like he often does, starts to mix metaphors and mix illustrations, and and he's making a subtle point here, and you can't miss this. I I never understood this until I studied through this this week. Paul, is the, the words that he's describing here, he's talking about clothing, He's speaking about clothing. And his point is this. There are some parts of your body and my body thought to be less honorable. These are the parts that we dress up and therefore give them special honor. The verb translated in verse um, 23, bestow, we bestow, has the idea of clothing. 
That's what the word means, to clothe. And it's, uh, most, of, most of us spend more time and effort clothing the parts of our body that are less attractive, correct? Right? From about here to about here, right? We want to cover that up in certain ways. Uh, he goes on at the end of verse 23 and speaks of our unpresentable parts. Those are the parts of our body that are considered private and ought to be covered at all times. Those, he says, we treat with special modesty. In other words, that's, he says they become, uh, we make them much more presentable. Special modesty. His point is this. When we treat those less honorable parts and those private parts of our physical body with more abundant honor and modesty, the end result is that they are protected and they become all the more attractive and decent. It's not the parts of the body that are the problem. It's the displaying of them that's shameful and indecent. They're necessary. You need every part of your body to be whole. And the same, he says, is true of Christ's body in his church. Those members who are more presentable, maybe they're more mature in the faith, maybe they have a more public-facing ministry, maybe they've been given the privilege of leadership. Those whose gifts and responsibilities are normally and naturally on display for all to see, like your face and your hands. Everyone sees them most of the time. He says they don't need any special attention. We don't need to do anything with them. They have an obligation, he says, they don't, and he says they have an obligation to show those less presentable members special care, appreciation, and protection. It makes me think of 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. He says, help the weak, but be patient with everyone. All the parts are necessary. Why has God done this? Verse 25 so that there may, there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Two reasons. God intentionally composed the body this way to guard against divisiveness and to guard against partiality. In his perfect blending of every member in the church, God provides a built-in mechanism against dissension and factionalism. In his perfect wisdom, God's designed every member of the church, no matter who we are, to work for the common advantage and benefit of the whole. Everybody has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. If there's any failure in the church, that failure is not because of God's design. It is because of our flesh. How do we know that that's happening? How do we know when we're healthy and strong and every member is fulfilling their divine purpose? When this, and he tells us in verse 26, when the suffering of one person is shared sympathetically across the whole body and when the glory of one person is shared is rejoiced in by the whole body. Look at verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's how you know that the church is healthy and strong. Think about it. When you have a headache, it's impossible for that one part of your body to be in pain and the rest of your body to be at peace, right? You've ever had a, I've never had a migraine, but anyone that's ever told me about a migraine you, you, the rest of you just doesn't go about its business, right? We often say things like this, I'm in pain, right? Not, 
Like when I chopped off the corner of my ring finger, I didn't say my left ring finger's in pain. I was in pain. If you've had back pain, you know I am in pain <laughs> everywhere. Likewise, when one member of the body is honored, all share the joy. That's what he says at the end there. Chrysostom, church father, preacher, said the head is crowned and the whole man is honored. I think that's a wonderful picture. It's important, though. He notes there, Paul doesn't say the whole body shares the honor. What does he say? They share the what? Joy. They share, they rejoice in others' honor. The last part, then, of verse 26 throws the possibility of rivalry within the body out the window. We don't look at other people and their success or their giftedness or those things and then become jealous and feel like, I need that kind of affirmation too. I need that kind of you know, accolades as well. Turf wars, jealousy, one-upsmanship have no refuge in the church by God's design. We must be quick to put those things to death in our hearts. And so that's the illustration. The unity and the diversity together, personified, and he draws out all these wonderful pictures. But being the preeminent preacher an apostle that he is, he cannot forget to make the application. And that's what he does in the last verses, 27 to 31. He's explained the text. He's illustrated the text. Now he's going to bring, to bring it to bear in the hearts of his audience. Verse 27, now you are Christ's body, you, Corinthians, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Again, his concern is not in this listing to give an, a comprehensive instruction about individual gifts or ministries. He's not even really ranking them so much. He's simply applying what he said up to this point. He said it back in 19. If we were all one, where would the body be? And that's what these rhetorical questions are drawing out. If there was any doubt in their minds up to this point that Paul was talking about them all this time, it was, goes out the window in verse 27 and following. Everything Paul's been saying has been about them. And the obvious answer to all these questions that he says here, you know, all do not have the gifts of healing and tongues and interpret, right? The obvious answer is, of course not. Of course they don't. Diversity within unity has been Paul's concern from the start. And tongues, which is what they were fixated on, was a part of the diversity of ways that God gifted their church, but it wasn't the only way God had gifted their church. And so they needed to reevaluate and reassess. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. To make the application is the same application that we made last Sunday. We should never look at others in the church. We should never look at others in the church and covet how God's gifted them. We should never grumble or complain about the ways that God has not or has gifted us. 
Because with perfect wisdom, the triune God has given you spiritual giftedness for the common good, for the building up of the body, and we should be looking to serve others in whatever ways that God would allow us to serve. Whatever opportunities present themselves, may we grab hold of them. However God has gifted you, whatever opportunities are available to you, grab hold of those things and be confident that that's exactly where God wants you to be in his church. Serve him with gladness. I, I had a pastor in seminary, and he used to sign his emails that way, and I loved it so much that I, I stole it. <laughs> Psalm 100, verse 1, serve him with gladness. And that's how we need to serve. And, and if you're tempted to think that you know, my ministry is just nothing, it, it just doesn't account for anything, that's not true. Now, we may not do the best job of encouraging or affirming or, or giving thanks for those things, but, but man, you understand that that is not true. You are absolutely indispensable to the church. If you have more responsibility or a more public-facing or prominent ministry, make sure that you give thanks for and encourage those who serve. That is just a wonderful practical takeaway. Those who serve in less noticeable, less prominent ways, we need to affirm them and give thanks for them privately. And if you give thanks for them privately, I guarantee you, you will give praise to them and thanks for them publicly. And if you don't, you won't. And so really it boils down to our recognizing what God has done in his church and giving and applying that to our hearts and lives. I tell our kids all the time, if you don't say, if you're not saying thanks for things, it's because you're not thankful. You're not thinking about the fact that you don't deserve anything that God's given you. And so we want to be, uh, we want to cultivate the heart so that we can bring forth the fruit of a righteous heart, a thankful heart. Well, with that, Paul pivots in verse 31. And what he says in verse 31 really connects to what follows. There's some confusion, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. What's Paul talking about? Is he talking about being an apostle or, or what? Miracles or tongues? Is he talking about this list he just gave? No, no, he's talking about what he's going to say. Because he picks that up again in chapter 14, verse 1. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. What are these greater gifts? He's going to tell you. Prophecy is the greater gift, not tongues. Because, and he goes into the reasons, prophecy, the man who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, and consolation. But before he gets to that, he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that is the necessity and preeminence of love, which we'll have to pick up next Sunday. Father, we thank you that you have given us this sermon, this simple explanation, illustration, application of these great truths that we would understand that in your body, the church, every part is absolutely necessary. Every part has its own gifts and its own uh, opportunities and its own privileges and its own responsibilities. And every person is necessary. Lord, may we approach ministry with that mindset. May we serve with that mindset. May we be committed to the local church with that mindset. And help us to give thanks, Lord. Help us to take notice of those Again, especially those who serve in quiet and sort of uh, uh, behind-the-scenes ways. And may we be quick to acknowledge and thank you for that. And may we be quick to encourage them 
and to build them up so that they would grow in Christ and use their gifts in a greater and greater measure for the building up of the body in love. But Lord, all that is because you have worked in our hearts, because you have baptized us by your spirit and made us into your body through faith in Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.